Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've loved us and given your son to us. That we no longer have to be at enmity with you because you have made peace with us through him. And Father, we want to be able to see and hear from you this morning. So Lord, open up our eyes that we might be able to behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't read Tolkien's classic novel, Lord of the Rings, until I was well into adulthood. I was a PhD student, in fact, and the movies were just about to be released, and I had determined that I was going to read these books before the movies came out, before I went to see them. So I finally, as an adult, buckled down and read them. And it turned out to be one of the most pleasurable reading experiences that I've ever had in my life. I literally could not put the book down. As a grown man even, I would lay at night in my bed with the lights off, Susan sitting over here, and I would have a, a nightlight on just trying to read this thing under the covers because this world that to Tolkien had created captured my imagination, and I was absolutely hooked. And I know that most of you are probably familiar with the story, but the story focuses on this enchanted ring that gives its owner almost unlimited power, but if, any, if you choose to use the ring, it makes you evil. And so this ring was a temptation even to, the, even to the good guys in the story because even though they knew the seductive power of the ring and the evil that it could bring, they would allow themselves to believe that perhaps the ring wouldn't make them evil and that they could just use the ring for good. And so it was a temptation for the characters in the book. And one of the most compelling and tragic characters in the book uh, in, in the whole series is this creature named Gollum, which you all know because of Andy Serkis's performance in the movies that came out. And, but this creature, Gollum, I say a creature because it, it wasn't for a while entirely clear what he even was. He possessed this ring for many hundreds of years, and the ring gave him this unusually, unnaturally long life. And he called it his precious. You remember that? And it became the sole object of his desire. All he wanted was his precious. And when he lost it, he would do anything to get it back, including steal, lie, cheat, and even kill people to get it. He wanted to possess this ring above all else. But what he didn't know is that the ring was possessing him. Gollum didn't really have power when he had the ring. The ring the, he was a slave to the ring. And over the course of his unnaturally long life, this ring turned him, to, turned him into a loathsome, monstrous creature. His desire to possess the ring was what ultimately would destroy him. Now, I'm, I'm bringing up Gollum here because he's a well-known literary case study in what idolatry does to a person. Idolatry is the worship of some person or thing in place of God. 
It is making someone or something that's not God into the object of your highest love. It's giving the highest place in your affections to someone or something that does not deserve that place. A place that only belongs to God. God is a jealous God and he suffers no rivals. That is why he hates idols. Idols are loathsome to him. They are an abomination to him, the Bible says. And yet, throughout Scripture, it not only says that they're loathsome to God, the Bible says that idols are also loathsome to us in this sense. Psalm 115.8, those who make them idols will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Did you know that you acquire the traits of whatever it is that you worship? If you worship the one true and living God, you will become holy and glorious. If you worship idols, you will become loathsome and abominable. Because that's what idols are. Our problem is, is that we don't see our idols that way. We see them as our precious. And don't see how, dis how our disordered love for them can transform us over time into loathsome, abominable creatures. What is it that you love more than God? What sin do you love more than you love God? Are you an addict for an idol in your life? Because if you are, you don't have your idol. Your idol has you. And without repentance, you will render yourself a loathsome, monstrous shadow of yourself. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to begin looking in verse 14. Paul is winding up his teaching about food that have been, that, that's been sacrificed to idols. And he does it with a warning against idolatry. Now, it's clear that in chapter 8, some of the Corinthian believers were eating food that had been offered to idols, and they were doing so, apparently, within pagan temples. They reasoned that it was no big deal for them to do this because a pagan temple, in their mind, was like going to the civic center. It's just a place where people met to gather because even though it was a pagan temple, the gods to whom they were sacrificing were not real. And so it was no big deal. So they had this knowledge that there's no such thing as idols and that there's no God but one. And so they thought they didn't have to worry about food sacrifice to idols because false gods can't pose real threats. But Paul tells them that there is more to it than that. And so in chapters 8 and 9, he tells them that eating food offered to idols like this in a pagan temple puts other people's souls at risk. And then chapter 10, he's telling them that they're putting their own souls at risk. And so last week, we look at the first 13 verses of chapter 10, where he tells them to take heed lest they fall into the same kind of idolatry that the Israelites fell into and were judged for. Now, in this last part of chapter 10, he's going to drive that point home even, even further. Paul tells them, we who are many are one body. And he tells them that as one body, we're supposed to look a certain way. And so our sermon this morning has two points. We're supposed to be one body that's idol free. 
One body that's love-filled. Those are the two points. One body, idol-free, verses 14 to 22. And then one body, love-filled, verses 23 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. So one body, idol-free. Everybody look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, notice that he says, flee from idols. He doesn't say dabble with idols. He doesn't say see how close you can get to idols without actually worshiping them. He doesn't say try to discover good aspects of idols and hold on to the good while abstaining from the evil. No, he says flee from idolatry, which means when you are faced with an idol and the powerful pull of your own desire for evil, you are supposed to run the other way. Like the old song says, go west, young man, when the evil go east. You go the opposite direction. Why does he say that they should flee? Why not just tell them to resist idolatry? Well, the word therefore at the beginning of the verse points us back to the reasons for the command. There are two of them. We looked at them last week. The first reason is in verse 12. He says, because if you don't flee, you're likely to fall. If you flirt with your idols or coddle your idols, it's just a matter of time before you will sell out to your idols. You will end up worshiping them. You cannot make peace with them or reason with them. You have to flee. You've got to go the opposite direction from idolatry. The second reason for the command is in verse 13 of of the previous verses because God has provided a way of escape. The way of escape is not necessarily going to be pain-free. It will often be costly to you to be faithful. But there will be some way of escape from evil, according to verse 13. So the command is to flee from idols because you can and because you must, or else you may fall. So Paul says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. What I say. Now, when Paul calls them sensible, I I think he may be appealing ironically to their own view of themselves. They claim to have knowledge, according to chapter 8. They think they're really wise, right? They're really smart. They can just march right into these idols' temples, do whatever they please to do because of their vaunted wisdom. They're so wise and knowledgeable that they could just do this. And it's like Paul is saying, All right, smart boy, let's see how smart you are. And so he lays out for them why their idolatry is anything but the sensible option. He says in verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now Paul, at this point, is obviously talking about the elements of the Lord's Supper. He's appealing to their common understanding of what that meal means Every time they share it together. And as we find out in chapter 11, the bread signifies Christ's body broken for us on the cross. The cup signifies Christ's blood spilled out for us on the cross. Together, they both point to the new covenant established by Christ's sacrificial death. But Paul says here, when we eat and drink, it's actually our participation in the body. In blood of Christ. What does that mean? 
Now, the word translated participation is the Greek word koinonia. Some of you know this. It just means to fellowship or a sharing in of something. And in this case, it's to drink the cup and to eat the bread amounts to a sharing in the new covenant through Christ's work on the cross. So the new covenant establishes a new relationship, both vertically with God and horizontally with each other. Vertically, every time we partake of the meal, it is a ratification of the new covenant that we have with God through Christ. And so this meal is bearing witness to both aspects, the vertical and the horizontal. Vertically, we're where every time we partake of the meal, it's a ratification of that new covenant we have with God through Christ horizontally. Every time we partake of the meal, it's a ratification of the new covenant fellowship that we have with each other as the body of Christ. And so verse 17 is developing this horizontal dimension. It says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now the bread signifies Christ's body. The bread is one and broken into many pieces to feed those at the meal. In the symbolism of the meal, so also we his people are one and unified through Christ's death, even though we are each individually members of his body. The point is that we have a covenant fellowship with God and with each other as a result of Christ's death for us. The meal is pointing us to that and is renewing that relationship every time we take it. One theologian, Gordon Hugenberger, says it this way. He says that the meal, every time we take it, it's a covenant ratifying oath sign every time we do it. Or to put it another way, if baptism is our wedding vows, the Lord's Supper is the renewal of our wedding vows. And here at Kenwood, we renew them every week. So verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So Paul is now talking about, he's moved from talking about the Lord's Supper to now referring to the sacrificial system prescribed by the Old Testament. Some of those sacrifices were consumed only by the priests, so others of them were, were consumed by the whole community. In Judaism, those who ate the sacrifices were expressing a covenantal fellowship, both with God and with their fellow Israelites. The same is true for Christians. That's what Paul's drawing on here. He's saying that eating the food at the Lord's Supper is like that for us. It means something. There's a meaning, there's a fellowship that's going on when we enter into this meal, just like it was for them under the old covenant. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now, now track with Paul here. Paul has made the case that we're actually sharing in the body and blood of Christ when we partake of the meal. He's saying that's just like the old covenant. They're actually, there was a, a participation that was going on, a fellowship in the altar when they did this in the Old Testament. So, the God of Israel and the God of the Lord's Supper is a real God. And those old and new covenant meals actually signified a real bond with the real God. And so Paul's saying, though, look, doesn't the analogy break down since false gods are not real? No meal can signify a real binding relation to deities that don't exist. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything 
or that an idol is anything? Am I about to, is he, has he argued himself into the corner of saying that these idols are representing real deities? Well, of course, Paul doesn't believe that. Look what he says in verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see what Paul's saying here? The Corinthians have reasoned, have reasoned to themselves that since there's no God but one, what goes on inside a pagan temple doesn't really matter at the end of the day. If they go into an idol's feast, who cares? But Paul says, wait a minute, not so fast. It's true that Jupiter and Zeus don't exist. They really are fabrications of human imagination. But it is not true that there are no supernatural beings behind the idols and the images of those false gods. The powers behind those idols are not Jupiter and Zeus. They are demons. There is an entire unseen realm of demonic creatures that are deluding and that are receiving the worship of the idolaters. And Paul is not just pulling this out of thin air. Verse 20 is a, includes a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 17, which confirms that when Israel drifted into idolatry, they too were worshiping demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says this, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. The names of those idols in the Old Testament weren't demon one and demon two. They were false names, but behind those false names were real demons. And so because demons stand behind these idols, Paul is declaring this. Look what he says at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons which means that almighty God and demons don't mix. God is holy. Demons are not. God is almighty. Demons are cowering and grovel before him. God judges. The demons are damned. You cannot partake of both. You can have God or you can have demonic idols, but you can't have both. There's no fellowship between Christ and demons. Therefore, there can be no fellowship between you and your idols. So look what Paul says with these last questions in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're not stronger than him. If you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, I'm going to hold my idol and get in your face. You'll lose. You're not stronger than him. But why does Paul ask this question? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? How is it that God could be jealous? Is God like some insecure husband who's wringing his hands, just hoping his wife, you know, won't leave him or something like this? No, that's not what jealousy means here. God is not needy or anxious. In fact, the first time that God, God calls himself jealous is in the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And it's dealing with idolatry. Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So what does jealousy mean? It doesn't mean that he's anxious okay, and worried about things like things are out of control. Jealousy means in the second commandment that he requires exclusive allegiance and that there can be no other gods before him. And that if you do have a God before him, his jealousy will judge you. That's what jealousy is all about. Someone might say, well, my God is not like that. My God, that's kind of harsh. But you need to ask yourself if that question comes up in your mind, if your God is the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a jealous God who will not suffer any rival in your idols. None. Period. Also, did you know that God over and over again compares idolatry to adultery in the Bible? When his people go off into idolatry, he says they're going off into adultery. They're cheating on him. And it really is like that. So ask yourself, how tolerant can a person be of adultery? How tolerant would you be of adultery? Here's a little thought experiment for you. Suppose a husband comes to his wife and he says this, look, I'm getting a little bored with this marriage and I don't want a divorce or anything, but I do need a little more flexibility. I'm going to require a short period of time every year to go live with my old high school sweetheart. We've reconnected on Facebook, and I just want a little bit of time every year to live with her. I only need a month out of the year. Don't be upset about it. You get 11. She gets one. That's pretty good for you. Now, how, how is a spouse going to respond to that kind of an arrangement? You wouldn't accept that. Nobody would accept that. So the wife tells him no. So he makes a counterproposal. Okay, uh, maybe a month is too long. Let's just make it one week out of the year. One week out of the year, that'll tide me over for all the rest of the time I have to spend with you. She will not accept that proposal. So he keeps up the negotiation. How about just one day? I really do think that one day out of the year, just to be in her arms, will be everything that I need. One day, you get all the rest of the 364. She will not go for that. How about an hour? How about a minute? How about a second? No, you know the answer. Not even one second would be acceptable. If you're going to be in a marriage covenant, then no amount of time in the arms of another lover will be acceptable at all. If you, a sinner, would not tolerate that in your marriage, why would you expect a holy God to tolerate it in his? Here's the thing. God will not tolerate his people having some other God before him. You can have that other God or you can have Christ, but you can't have both. That means you can't be devoted to anyone or anything more than you are to Christ. That's why Jesus talked that way to his people. It was kind of, remember how it was all, all or nothing? You can love mammon or you can love me, but not both. You remember that? That's why he spoke that way. 
All of your other loves must be subordinate to your love for him. All of your other loyalties must be subordinate to your loyalty to him. Not even your love for good things can come before him. Not even your love for your family can come before him. Jesus said it this way. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Which means you can't even value your life above Jesus if you want to be his disciple. You can have no other gods before him. I don't know about you all, but that's pretty convicting to me. God will not tolerate our idolatry, yet we often feel our heart pulled in that direction, don't we? And we find ourselves there too often. But here's the thing. He is at work in us through the Holy Spirit to root it out of our hearts because we so often slide into it. God's not going to abandon us to our idols. We should not abandon ourselves to our idols. So you've got to ask yourself the question, is there anything or anyone in my life that I have made an idol of? Have you made an idol out of the approval of men? Have you made an idol out of your career? Have you made an idol out of money and things? If you serve those idols, you cannot serve Christ because he is a jealous God and he will not. He will not suffer any rivals. And you have to repent and turn to him and find the satisfaction that you're looking for in your idols, but you'll never find there. You'll have to come and find it in him. So what, what's Paul saying here? They're going to visit these pagan temples. They're just sort of dabbling in it, false gods. Paul's saying, you've got to flee from that. You're going to be one body with one body and one united people with one another. You've got to be idol free. But then the second thing he says is that he says this one body has to be love filled. Look at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, it's at this point that Paul takes a turn in his argument and he circles all the way back around to where he started in chapter 8. In chapter 8, the knowledgeable Corinthians were proclaiming their right to eat food sacrificed to idols, even in an idol's temple. And before Paul ever addressed the dangers of idolatry to their own souls, he got them to first think about how their actions might affect the consciences of the weak in the congregation, those who were still prone to being tempted by idolatry. And so he concludes in chapter 8 by saying, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So now Paul, at this point in chapter 10, is returning to this. And he does so by invoking nearly identical slogans to what we saw in chapter 6 in verse 12. Remember the Corinthians said, all things are permissible for me or all things are lawful for me. They say it again here, all things are lawful. But keep in mind these words in quotation marks 
are not Paul's words, they're the Corinthians' words. Some of the Corinthians were claiming that all things were lawful and that they could do whatever they wanted because of their Christian freedom, so-called. They were no longer under the law, so they didn't have to get bogged down by Old Testament rules. In chapter 6, that slogan, all things were lawful, was a justification for immorality. Now in chapter 10, that slogan, all things are lawful, is a justification for eating in an idol's temple. And eating these food sacrificed to idols. And so Paul answers their slogans not by negating them outright, but by qualifying them. Why does he do that? He does that because it is true that they have freedom in Christ to do lots of things. But it is not true that they have freedom to do anything. Paul is going to once again teach them that their Christian freedom doesn't give them a right to run roughshod over people's consciences. There are a lot of things that they have freedom to do, but they shouldn't do if they love their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. They have an obligation to do only what profits and what builds up the congregation that they live in. So notice that Paul uses that same word for build up. You see that in verse 23? All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, not all things build up. That same word for build up appears in chapter 8 and verse 1 where he says that knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Building up is the expression of love within the community. So when Paul talks about limiting their freedom here, he means that they're limited by love. The kind of love that edifies other members of the church, which is why he says what he says in the next verse. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Which means if you're a believer, you're not called to serve yourself, but to serve others, just like Jesus did. And so now he's going to apply this to the food that's offered to idols. But um, he's going to do this in a way that he hasn't really done yet. We already know that he forbids people from eating idol offerings in an idol's temple. We know that. But what about idol offerings that are not being eaten in an idol's temple? Now, you remember, in the ancient world, when they would make sacrifices to idols, part of the animal would be burned on the altar. Part of the animal would be distributed and eaten in a ritual within the pagan temple. And then the remainder of the animal could be sold off in the meat market. Well, what happens if you're just buying food in the meat market and it happened to have been a part of one of these sacrifices? What then? Look what Paul says in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Which means you don't have to find out how the meat was used before it was made, made its way to the market. So long as you are not participating in the worship of an idol's temple or in some kind of pagan ritual, it's totally fine to buy and eat the meat. Well, why is that okay? Because of verse 26. For the earth is the, Lord, the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the Lord of creation. All of it belongs to him. And that doesn't change simply because some people choose to worship that creation. God still richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's his creation. A strong doctrine of creation produces statements like that. If God made it, God owns it and can share it at will with his creatures for their enjoyment. And 
He doesn't want you to listen to people who would tell you otherwise. Likewise, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You don't have to ask where the food came from, even if you're dining in a private home with a pagan. You're free to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols so long as there is no idol ritual involved in the eating. But then he adds this one caveat. Look what he says in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? When somebody brings it to your attention that the food has been sacrificed to an idol, they may be doing so because they're like the person that Paul talked about in chapter 8 and verse 7. Paul says there that some people through former association with idols eat food as, as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Somebody informs you, you've got to, you've got to allow the possibility they, they might be in that kind of a category of person. Paul says there's no reason to abstain for your own conscience, but on account of their conscience. You don't want to defile their conscience. So for their sake, you should abstain. What if I don't know why they told me that it was offered to idols? Abstain anyway. Err on the side of caution out of love for their sake. Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here Paul is just emphasizing the fact that it's not the strong believer's conscience that's in jeopardy here. The strong believer is actually otherwise free to eat that meat. And they should not be denounced for doing so when they do, since there's nothing wrong with eating the meat. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point is, whatever you do as a strong person, even your everyday habits of eating and drinking, that must be brought under the lordship of Christ. That means you must eat and drink to the glory of God. And in this case, that means loving your neighbor enough to go without to prevent their consciences from being defiled by your eating. Paul says in verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. And so what Paul's doing in verses 32 and 33 is he's commanding, he's expanding this command. Paul's not only willing to curtail his freedom for the sake of the congregation, other believers, he's also willing to curtail his freedom in order to win the lost. That was his whole point in chapter 9. He has become all things to all men so that he may by all means win some. And now he's saying that if abstaining from food sacrificed to idols will help advance the gospel, he's willing to set aside his freedom for the sake of the gospel. The reason for this is in the next verse. And I think it's really unfortunate that there's a paragraph break here. These verse divisions were not in the original text, and it's clear that chapter 11, verse 1, goes with the paragraph we've just been studying. Because he says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you get the connection there? Paul has become all things to all men that he may by all means win some means he sets aside his own freedoms 
so that he can win more people to the gospel? Who's the ultimate example of surrendering his rights to save wayward sinners? It's Jesus. Paul's saying that he imitates Christ in this. If they want to imitate Christ in this, they should imitate him because that's what he's doing. Paul is laying down his rights for the gospel, his rights for the sake of the gospel, and the Corinthians should do the same. Now, this is no small point. Because if you're unwilling to imitate Christ in laying aside your freedoms, what you think you have a right to do, if you're unwilling to do that for others, are you really willing to follow Christ at all? You know, this last week, um, Susan and I had a little conflict. I know it's a very, it's a big surprise. Sometimes we have conflicts. We're so holy, I'm sure you thought that we just don't have conflicts. Um, no, this is not true. Um, it, it did happen. And as it turns out, it was mainly my fault. Some months ago, Susan had asked me if I would stop putting clutter from the house and from the cars onto the dining room table. In the past, I have a, I've had this uh, habit of consolidating clutter, taking it from many places and putting it in one place so it can be distributed where it's supposed to go from the one place. So it's, I'm a little obsessive about it. But she asked me to stop doing that. Why? Well, because that's her main workspace in the house. It's where she teaches homeschool. It's where the kids keep their schoolwork. It's where the piano is. It's where they do their lessons. And it's really discouraging for, to her when I turn that into a junk pile with clutter from all over the house and from the cars. And even when she asked me this a long time ago, I was at first resistant to this because I thought I had a right to do this. But I agreed not to do that anymore. Don't I sound like a pleasant person? <laughs> well, fast forward to this week. I had to give the Breelands a ride to the, the airport one morning this week, and when it was time to go, the, the car was completely trashed out, and so I very hastily put everything into bags. And then guess what I did with the bags? I put them on the table, the dining room table, where I said I would not put them. And so there it was. She later in the day politely brought it up to me, and I defended my rights to put it on the table. I got confrontational about it. After all, she should be more forbearing with me, right? We went back and forth, and I argued my case. And by the way, just a little parentheses here, guys who are married. If your wife is upset with you, and you're having a confrontation about something, you can't make her not upset with you through Aristotelian logic. <laughs> if A equals B and B equals C, then you shouldn't be mad at me, right? Uh, uh, it, you know, it just doesn't work that way, all right? So close parentheses. <laughs> um, I was making my case, and it was a really, I put on a really bad display before I finally apologized to her and said I shouldn't have done that. Now, Putting the clutter on the table, that's a small thing in the scheme of things. But do you see how, like, small things can be really big things when we keep insisting on our rights rather than acting out of love? Do you see how a cumulative effect of insisting on your rights can actually alienate people that you're supposed to love? 
I want to suggest to you that you cannot have peace in your household if everyone runs around insisting on their rights, what they have coming to them, what they are owed, what they are free to do. If you live that way in your home, there will be no peace between mom and dad. There will be no peace between parents and kids or between kids and kids. It will be a place of resentment and recrimination if you live that way. You just can't live like that. And I want to suggest to you that it will be no different at Kenwood Baptist Church if we treat each other like that. If we become the kind of people that are always insisting on what we think we have a right to, what we are owed, what we've got coming to us, what we're free to do. If we live that way, this place will become a place of resentment and recrimination. And we can't live like that. We can't grow like that. We can't evangelize like that. It just won't work. We'll fall apart. And you know why? Because it's the opposite of love. If we love each other, we are going to have to forbear with each other. And it means that some things we think we have a privilege to or a right to, sometimes we're just going to have to set those things aside and not insist on them. And that's just going to have to be okay. And we do it not because we're self-righteous, but because we just love each other. It's because what Jesus made us to be. We're supposed to be one body, idol-free. And we're supposed to be one body, love-filled. So let me just finish by asking you a couple, three questions here. Are there things that you are free to do but that maybe you ought not do out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a really simple question. I don't know what those things are in your life. You're going to have to pray about that and answer that question. Second question. Are there things that you're free to do but maybe you ought not do because you're trying to win your neighbors to Christ? Last thing, are there idols in your life that you care about more than you care about following Christ? If your answer to any one of those questions is yes, then now would be a good time to confess that to the Lord and to repent of that. God is willing and able to renew us again to faithfulness, but we have to humble ourselves in confessing this. And we have to humble ourselves to put other, pe other people's needs before our own. Again, we are doing this because this is the way that Jesus treated us. Jesus had all kinds of rights and privileges. He had the right and privilege to judge us because of our sin and send us to hell. But you know what he did? Instead of remaining enthroned on glory, he set aside rights and privileges and he emptied himself and he became a servant. The Bible says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then after three days, God raised him up and God highly exalted him. Jesus surrendered his rights out of love for us to save us. And he's calling us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word. It's such a hard word. Because our, we feel in our hearts how they're just so wayward and called out to worthless idols so often. But Father, we want to confess and say that we know that you love us 
and that you're not going to abandon us to, to our idols. And because of that, we're not going to give ourselves over to them. So, Lord, I pray you would stir up in us a resolve to love you, to keep our eyes on the main thing, and not to be drawn away to the abominations. Lord, do that among us. I also pray that we would not be so self-involved that we can't serve each other and we can't love each other and put aside our own rights for one another. So help us to get outside of ourselves and to see sometimes how our selfishness um, rules us. And I pray you would not let that sin rule over us. So there are just countless practical ways in the lives represented in this room that, that you want to apply that. And so, Father, I just pray, pray that you would. Lord, we thank you that you loved us, that you've not abandoned us, but you've chosen to save us. Humble us by that. Make us like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.